Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up at verse 28. And it's the fourth of, uh, it's the, fourth of the big questions. So what we've done, and uh, you know, apologies if you've been with us for the, the last three, and you're now tired of that slide, but just to put it into a context, four times Jesus was confronted with one of the big questions of the day, and in part, they were asking these questions to try and trap him. And sometimes, and this, this question though, is, is much more than being appreciative of Jesus. And they want to help Jesus really to help them. But four times, confrontation um, about certain issues that really matter to the people who are asking. So the first question really was, you know, could be summed up by those chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the rulers of the day, the rulers of the people, essentially saying, Jesus, who do you think you are because we're in charge? And Jesus has that, that sort of confrontation about actually Jesus is coming to tell them that he is indeed the Messiah. He's the one around which everything is going to be built. And then they have a question with about tax. What, you know, who should you pay tax to, Caesar or God? And what do you think? And um, he argues that with the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then about the resurrection last week, about the Sadducees, because the Sadducees were suggesting there was no resurrection, and Jesus, and they asked him a stupid question, really. And then he, he, he gives him a chance to talk about the resurrection life. And today, it's a, 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 a sort of a confrontation or a question from a teacher of the law. And it's about the commandments. So you can see in each case, the people who are bringing the question are the ones who've got the most invested in the answer. And that's what's going on right now. So in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that, God, uh, that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And uh, you might be aware of this, but when he's asking that question, he's, it's with the backdrop of the 613 commands that had sort of developed over time. And so when he's asked, when he's been asked this question, it's like, out of all of our history, out of all the way things have developed, out of all the way we think about the world, what do you think is the most important thing? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God's one and there's no other but him. To love uh, him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And again, you can read over that too quickly, but just get in your mind where this conversation's happening. Over their shoulder is the temple, where all the burnt offerings and sacrifices are happening. Okay? But Jesus has sort of answered in a way that the teacher of the law is going, yep, yeah, you're right. It what you have just said matters more than all this religious paraphernalia. It was quite a thing for the teacher of the law to say. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, 
Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he then be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Well, there's the sermon. Love God and love people. Jesus has asked one question and about one command, what's the greatest command? And he said, actually, there's two, and those are the two. And in one real sense this morning, it's kind of like, go and do it. <laughs> that is the sermon. All right, that's what you've got to do. Now go do it. And um, everything else is really just unpacking the thing that we know is true. When Jesus was asked the question, what is the most important question? What he does is he goes back to the foundations of the Bible. He goes back to a passage in Deuteronomy and a passage in Leviticus. Now, that won't make me mean much to some of you, but what those two books have in common is they're part of the foundational documents when they, the people of Israel, way back, had been brought out of Egypt by Moses. When they were in Egypt, they'd, been this sort of, they'd just been used as economic units of production. They were slaves. And they'd been brought out of Egypt and they went through this 40 years in the wilderness because they were going to be given the promised land. That's the, that, that long story you know. And in the wilderness, what God does, he's, for 40 years, he takes this bunch of people who've been just used as slaves. And what he does in the wilderness, he starts to make them a people. Here, they'd been, um, they'd been trafficked, they'd been used, they'd been abused, but in the wilderness, he's going to make them a people. And so everything in the wilderness that happens, all those laws, is about, well, how are you going to live? What does it really mean to live? And what does it really mean to live well? Well, the first one, the Deuteronomy one, comes in a context where... They're reminding one another, how do you deal with your kids? How do you explain to your children why you're so different? And in that passage as a whole, it's then in that context of reminding the people to remind their children the reason we're different is because we've been called to love God. That's why we're different. We're not different in our context because we've got a church. We're different because actually we've got something fueling a different way of life. And when your children want to know what's different about us, the primary answer is we are loving God. Not to try and make God do something, but we're actually in this relationship with God who loved us first, and we've just we've received that, and we just want to love him back. That's what makes you different. And then the second was about loving your neighbor. Now, I'm going to read from Leviticus, uh, the 19th chapter. So if you can find it, just sort of flick back with me. Leviticus is one of those books that when you kind of write, reading, you know, 
Come January, some of you will do this. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And you kind of set out in January, all, all good and positive. And you go through Genesis, and Genesis is just a blast. Uh, lots of stories, lots of uh, stuff going on. And then half of, Gen- half of Exodus is brilliant. And then the other half is about building a tent that seems to take forever. And then you think, well, I'll get through that. And then you get to Leviticus, and it gets really weird. But actually, in Leviticus, which is a book I, I love, and some of you might remember when we did a, a series on that, and some of you might be glad we went here. But anyway, we did a, a series on Leviticus trying to explain how does reading that help us live today? Well, in the 19th chapter, in the 19th chapter of this book of Leviticus, the book of laws, um, just before going any further, there's a little girl who's, and a little boy. Can someone just go and check that they're okay? They're not doing any damage or anything. They're just looking a little confused. This book of Leviticus, this book of the law, was part of this shaping thing. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 19, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. Don't turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I'm the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It will be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned. And if any of it is eaten on the third day, it's impure and it won't be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they've desecrated what's holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. Don't play fast and loose in other words, with sacrifices. When you reap the harvest of your land, Don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner and the Lord your God. Care for those who don't have anything. Don't steal, don't lie, don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. And the Lord. Don't defraud your neighbors or rob them. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I'm the Lord. Don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you'll not share in their guilt. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. This social ethic is actually very down to earth. And Jesus quotes from both of them. Why are you different? Well, you're different because your heart is towards the Lord. And you're different because actually you've got a different social ethic. The way you deal with other people is different. Tom Wright said this. Worship is love on its knees before the Lord. Just as mission is love on its feet to serve the Lord. It's the way the two things hold together. Worship is love on its knees before the beloved. Just as mission is love on its feet to serve the Lord. You can't have one without the other. So we're called to worship. We're called to worship God. And part of worshiping God is when we do this sort of stuff on a Sunday morning. We come together and we sing the songs that try and express something of our heart. But the truth is, some of the things we sang this morning 
weren't actually worship. They were telling us about worship. I will worship with all of my heart. I will offer all of my life. In part is this sort of saying, yes. But actually, if it doesn't make a scrap of difference after 12 o'clock, it's not worship. It's actually the culmination of what's been going on all week, or it's the preparation for all that's going to happen ahead of you. Do you, do you see what I mean? Just saying, I worship you, doesn't actually make a scrap of difference, unless it's actually true. Unless you're coming and saying, everything I've got is yours. Worship is not somewhere where we come to retreat, but it's an offering of everything we've got. When Paul writes about it in Colossians, he says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. That's what worship in whole life looks like. It's all of it. It's everything you have. So here's the question. What have you got? This is not a rhetorical question. What do you have? In your life, your ordinary life, what physical, what things do you actually have? You've got time. Okay. So let's think about time for a minute. If you come, and if this morning you sang, I will offer all of my life, and you included time in that, what might God think you might have meant? Yes, thank you. That, he would have thought you'd given him all your time. What might that mean? <laughs> You're right, Lorna, but what might that mean? Being available. Pardon? Yeah, how can I use it for your glory? The moment you say, you can have my time, what, are you going to say, what might you have to say no to? Doing stuff just for you. You might have to say no to you. Because you've said yes to God. What else have you got? You're now going to be very careful as to saying, <laughs> well, I've got a 1978 Beano. Um, what else have you got? What else have you got? Freedom. So let's go through the same procedure. If you've said... I'm grateful this freedom. And we hear that sometimes. We pray that, don't we? Thank you, Lord, this morning that we're able to do this and nobody's da-da-da-da-da. So what are you gonna use? how are you going to use this freedom? You're going to exercise this freedom. You're going to use the freedom. But how? How, how are you going to use it? What does this freedom allow you to do? To speak out for things. To choose. To choose, to choose the right thing. So the next time you're in a context where well, you know you can say something, will you? Will you use the freedom or will you act as though we haven't got freedom? What else might you have? We'll just do one more. Honesty, honesty yeah. Money. I'll come to honesty in a minute, Ian, but let me use money for a moment. Time and money. Two things we feel we never have enough of. So you come and you say, I will offer you all I have. Now, some, when we talk about money, you can think about cash in the bank, or you can actually think about all the stuff you've actually, that money made possible for, you know, that you've got because of money. So the minute you say, this is what I've got, this is what I'm offering you in worship, 
What does it mean for, the, for your money or your stuff? It's not yours. So here's the question that I keep asking myself. How is my blessing good news for anybody else? How's my stuff good news for anybody else? All right? You think about what you've got. And if in church I'm going to be singing, I will offer you all of my life, I'll give you all my worship, I'll give you all my heart, etc., 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 then it actually comes down to really bottom-line stuff. as time, as money, freedom, the availability. And I can't live that in the 45 minutes or the hour, that we've, the hour and a half we spend in worship together. That's going to flow out tomorrow or this afternoon. And it's got to flow out from where I've been this week. That's what worship looks like. Because I've given it to God because actually I recognize that he gave me so much first. What stops it? What stops it happening? Self-interest stops it happening. Well, fear. Fear stops it happening. Pun? Yeah, forgetfulness. I just forget. I just forget. And I hope you can see now where... the next part is going to be so closely linked. You can't love God except it's going to have an effect on someone else. When John writes the letter later in the Bible, he's going to say, actually, if you think you can, if you, can, if you think you can love God and then just have a hard heart to people around you, John's going to say, my paraphrase, you're just fooling yourself. You can't do that except... It's going to affect other people. And the obvious things to say about that is no one is too ordinary and nothing is too insignificant. No one's too ordinary and nothing is too insignificant. No one is too ordinary. There's nobody around you who is not your neighbor. And nothing you offer is too insignificant. This week I was, uh, I was working... Uh, in London, and I was in a friend's office, and I was supposed to be doing something. And uh, I find myself, when I've got a job to do that I really am not that keen on doing, I am brilliant at finding other things to look at. All right, it's a real gift. And um, because I was in someone else's office, I was looking around at his bookshelves, I was looking about his posters, and other things. And I came across, it wasn't, I mean, I came across, it was right in front of me. It makes me sound like some sort of great detective. Um, but I came across this um, long piece and I posted it on Facebook, and I know some of you have seen it, or at least you've liked it. You may not have read it all, but you've liked it. And to be honest, on Facebook, that's what matters. Um, <laughs> makes me feel so good. Um, but this is, this is what was written for those of you who have not seen it before. It all matters. That someone turns out the lamp, picks up the wind-blown wrapper, says hello to the invalid, pays at the unattended cash desk, listens to the repeated tale, folds the abandoned laundry, plays the game fairly, tells the story honestly, acknowledges help, gives credit, says goodnight, resists temptation, wipes the counter, waits at the amber light, makes the bed, tips the maid, remembers the illness, congratulates the victor, accepts the consequences, takes a stand, steps up, offers a hand, 
goes first, goes last, chooses a small portion, teaches the child, tends to the dying, comforts the grieving, removes the splinter, wipes the tear, directs the lost, touches the lonely. It all matters. When the writer of Leviticus was putting together what it means to be shaped to be the people of God, he had big things like don't create other idols. Big things like how do you deal with your worship stuff? But then it has other things that are much smaller, like don't curse the deaf just because they can't hear you. Don't get irritated with them. Don't slander. Don't hold back the wages. It's the small things that reflect the love you have for your neighbor. It's the thing that Ian said. It's the honesty. The honesty that flows out of who you are. And, um, and I read that and I thought, this actually, I, thought, I just thought it was a great sort of list, really. And, um, and it was a great list because I know that it does matter. There's nothing that is too insignificant. There's no one that's too unimportant. But I also know that for as good as all of that is, and it's an easy thing to like on Facebook, and all of us say, yep, we think that matters, I know that's not necessarily always me. On Tuesday night, I was coming back from London, and um, I was sitting on a table. It's like, if you, if you don't often travel by trains, you know that the table is one of the holy grails of the train. <laughs> All right, if you get a table, it's a holy grail. That's like the thing you all want. And if you get a table with no one else on it, it's like, yes, take me to Glasgow. I don't want to stop. Because <laughs> you can spread out and it's great. And you've got a power supply. That's the other good thing. But if you've got a table with two young women opposite you and you've forgotten your earplugs, <laughs> it's not heaven, it's the other place. And uh, these two girls sat in front of me um, from London to, uh, to Manchester, which is just over two hours. And I found out all about everybody who works with them. <laughs> I felt a little bit sorry for Leon, because he was getting a really bad deal. <laughs> um, I know that they thought he was a real waste of space. I know exactly why he's a waste of space. Um, and uh, I heard everything about their firm. I heard about uh, Lisa, who's their team manager, who's a real cow, apparently. <laughs> and, um, and as they had their second bottle of wine, I heard more and more, and it became louder and louder. And uh, I did that thing that, you know, when you're middle-aged and you're really cross, you sort of look up and didn't make a scrap of difference. And um, <laughs> kind of prayed that they'd leave it. They went to the toilet at one point. That was a blessing. But anyway, um, they just carried on until we got to Stockport. And they thought they were in Manchester. And I didn't tell them. It gets worse. Maggie, um, Maggie sent me a text to say, are you in at 8.30 at normal time? And I said, yeah. And uh, I told her what had happened. 
And she said, what did you just post on Facebook? <laughs> Don't you hate it when your wife's your conscience? <laughs> I helped them with the bags. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> See, I'm not like that all the time. I'm not. This is the problem. I know that's what it looks like to love my neighbor. But put me in a situation where I get grumpy, or tired, or rushed, or distracted. And I'm not like that. I wish I were. I'm sometimes more like Jay, the forgetful one. Jesus says, this is what it means. To love and serve God. Because what he knew was that if we did live like this, loving God and loving our neighbor, even the irritating neighbor, then what we would become would be demonstrations of what the kingdom of God looks like. And at our best, that's what we've been. Someone's described it as being hints of hope. That's what you and I are, hints of hope. And the teacher of the law said, Jesus, you've answered really well. Matters more than all of this religious paraphernalia. And the next passage, the next bit of that passage was the question about Jesus asking the the teachers, and it made sense to them. It may not make much sense to, a, to us as we read it, but he was making sense to them. And he just asked the question about David and the son of David and the Messiah. Because what he was saying is, do you really believe that I'm the Messiah? Do you really believe that I'm the one that's to come? Do you really be, believe that I'm the leader? Jesus said to the teacher of the law, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then he finished it by saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that will lead you into all of this. What does God want of you? And what does God want of me? He wants us to love God because our heart and our love will direct our action. And he wants us to love people and he wants us to do something about it. And I want that too. I want it for me. I want to be the bloke who on the train listens to two women go on and on and on. And I want to be better. I want to be bigger hearted. I want to be gracious. And I'm not always like that. And what needs to change is not a list of rules. Thou shalt, on the train, thou shalt. I don't need a rule. What I need is my heart to be changed. And I don't know if I'm the only one in the room. If you know the two girls, they were called Sharon and Susan. Do apologize to me, to them on my behalf. 
And I'd like us to pray together. And if you can, then why don't you stand with me? The problem with that text, that biblical text today, is that you knew it so well. And it can skate over us. But what I needed to hear this week was the challenge of the text in the midst of a very ordinary day. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times when we haven't acted out of love for our neighbor. And we've thought of a million reasons why we were right not to do so. Forgive us for the times when we legitimized our own lack of grace. And we made excuses for ourselves. Forgive us for the times when we've not done what you've asked us to do. Forgive us for the times when we've not been the people who've loved like you would ask us to love. Lord, may your spirit change our hearts. May we reflect the Messiah. It's no good knowing all of this stuff, Lord, if we don't do it. Lord, we come this morning and we offer you in worship our money and our time, our freedom. We come and we offer you what we have. And we ask that you would use them for your glory and for the good of others. And Lord, we want to come and we want to ask that you'll help us to love our neighbor, not with the big acts of self-sacrifice, but with the small acts of ongoing love. Lord, soften our hearts, we pray. May we know your forgiveness and may we know your life flowing through us. Lord, we make us honest. Lord, we choose to follow you. 